Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us for a conversation with Peter Kingsley and Michael Lerner. Peter Kingsley, welcome to the New School. Peter, your work is really fascinating to me. You are a uh, classic scholar, a Greek scholar, uh, and also uh, a teacher of a very... uh, contemporary approach to spiritual life and to the perception of the underlying reality of life. And what you have sought to do is so extraordinarily ambitious in the best sense of that word. Uh, Your research into Parmenides and Empedocles and their whole uh, period of time, pre-Socratic as it's called, period of of time, has really completely upended the conventional view of the origins of uh, Greek philosophy. When I look at your, uh, your first book, Ancient Philosophy, Mystery, and Magic, from Oxford Press, and I read just to give people a sense of, of the respect with which this book was greeted, the Classical Review called it a remarkable achievement, challenging, learned, and at the same time enthralling to read, Anyone with a serious interest in early Greek philosophy should read this book. And uh, again, the Times Higher Education Supplement said the thesis is argued with immense learning, courageous and original. And the thesis of that book, uh, because the material here is so uh, profound and complex, I I just want to read a quote from the back cover uh, about what you sought to do here. You said, Empedocles played a crucial role in the development of Western culture, yet little is known or understood about this man who lived in Sicily in the 5th century BC. Using material never exploited before, this is the first full-scale study of Empedocles to situate his fragmentary writings in their original context of philosophy as a way of life, of mystery, religion, and magic, and of the struggle to realize one's own divinity. And that book and its successor books, In the Dark Places of Wisdom and Reality, have been greeted uh, by some rather remarkable people with uh, great interest. Uh, So we have people like uh, uh, Peter, uh, like Houston Smith, uh, saying, stunning original reality is momentous in its implications. We have Robert Johnson, the wonderful author of He, She, and other books, saying Dr. Kingsley's remarkable new book is extraordinarily valuable. Through his research into our past, he has found the key to the modern world impasse. And Larry Dossey uh, said, Peter Kingsley is a successor to Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. He is a transformative and life-changing force in our world. And so on. So that... Uh, it's not only that you have done this and that uh, your original work was greeted in uh, scholarly sources as a, a learned and original piece of work, but by the people who, in a contemporary sense, are seeking to recover uh, the heart of wisdom, the, the heart of uh, a deeper perception of reality, there's been a real sense of your contribution. So, uh, what strikes me uh, in all of this is, is the difficulty of, uh, of getting uh, into the essence of what you have to say in, in an hour's short time. 
But I thought perhaps the best place to start was with a simple question. Who was Parmenides? Parmenides was a human being. But he, as he says in the very, very first line of the, the poem that he wrote, introducing logic to the Western world, he talks about longing, about thumos, about this strange, passionate, emotional quality of yearning, which in later Greek philosophy, well, within a hundred years or so of Greek philosophy and Western philosophy, was to be demoted to a lower level underneath the intellect, underneath thought, underneath the mind. For Parmenides, it was at the very beginning, and that is what gave him access to the knowledge that he very humbly says that he simply brought back from another world. He just presents himself as a messenger. He presents himself as an ordinary human being who had a certain longing to go beyond appearances to find what is real behind the veils of existence. And through his longing was taken there, and then humbly he came back and he just said what he'd been told to say by the divinity behind existence in the world of the dead. Could you describe his poem and his journey to the world of the dead? Well, the journey to the world of the dead is not very pleasant. It's like any journey to the world of the dead. It's pretty harsh. On the one hand, it's implacably impersonal. The journey to the world of the dead, as Parmenides describes it, and I think anybody has experienced it because this is a reality, is, is a journey into an impersonal realm. It's the realm where people, when they die, are stripped of their personal values, their personal illusions, the personal sense of what is important, and you're taken into something beyond all that, something, if you like, quite coldly impersonal, something rather dark, rather scary. And yet what is, for me, so beautiful, and I can see for Parmenides must have been so beautiful, is that when he's taken into the heart of the underworld by these feminine powers, I have to emphasize that, everything, even the horses that carry him, he describes as feminine. This is an entry into the world of the feminine is not an entrance into the world of the masculine, of harsh, crude, logical realities. This is a descent into the world of mystery, of ambiguity, of everything that we associate with the depths of the feminine. And he is taken down there through this terrifying, terrifying, infinite world of darkness to the chasm of, of what, what primordial terms is, is the chasm of Tartarus. And there he is greeted by the Queen of the Dead, Persephone, and she welcomes him. She greets him. And that in itself is something so extraordinary, to actually be taken down right through the realms of what is most frightening for all of us as human beings, what we do our best to save ourselves from, to save those we love from, to save those we care for from, death, suffering. He went right through that, and at the very heart of all of that darkness, he is greeted by the Queen of the Dead. And this is something that I've linked in my, my, my two most recent books with this beautiful imagery, the iconography that you can see, especially in southern Italy where Parmenides came from, of Persephone as the Queen of the Dead who smiles. Persephone, Queen of the Dead, who actually has this mysterious healing power. She is the Queen of Death, and yet she heals. 
So I just say that about the, the journey. I mean, to come back to your first question and try and answer what the main part of this poem is about, this is a poem essentially about logic, although he goes on beyond logic in the last part of his poem to do something very, very mysterious. But the central part of his poem is to introduce the principles of logic to the Western world. And these principles are what Aristotle later and later Greek philosophers were all to base their principle, their application of logic on. This is the foundation. Nobody denies that Parmenides is the father of Western logic. And so he is presenting the rules of logic, or rather he is presenting the rules of logic through his own mouth. He is presenting the rules that have been given to him by the goddess, by the queen of the dead. And of course you can go two ways with this, and this is something that I find so fascinating. You can either go the way of analyzing the laws of logic, the principles, which is what many people tend to do, or else you can see what does the logic that Parmenides presents point to. And immediately, if you actually look at this, and this is something so mysterious for me because scholars who spend their whole lifetimes analyzing and writing about and discussing and teaching Parmenides' poem, they ignore the poetic context. They ignore the poetic form, but they also ignore what the logic is pointing to. And Everything that Parmenides is proving is oneness. It's all pointing to everything is one. Everything is one. That is the, the song that comes through logic. That's what logic originally came into existence in the West for, to prove the oneness of all of existence and of all being. Now, in the second part of the poem, you mentioned that he does something very mysterious. What does he do in the second part of the poem? Well, after that, after the goddess has presented ruthlessly these, these laws of logic, which take everything back to one, nothing else exists apart from the one indivisible, eternal being of reality. Then when she's gone through all of the logical proofs for that, the, the signs, the demonstrations, she suddenly says, okay, I have now discussed reality. Now I'm going to deceive you. And then she goes on to present the principles of this, what she describes as this illusory world we live in, this world which is not one, which is divided, which has multiplicity everywhere, conflict, separation, distance, isolation. And she actually goes into this world of illusion. She says from the very beginning, this is a world of illusion. Even for me to talk about it is to deceive you, is to trick you. But she goes into it in such depths that she gives explanations of this world of illusion that nobody else had given before. So, for example, this is the first place in Western literature, or to my knowledge, any literature anywhere in the world, where you find the Earth presented as a sphere, as round. This is the first time you have any references to the Tropic of Cancer, the Tropic of Capricorn. The knowledge in all of this final part of Parmenides' poem is so advanced that it took Western civilization hundreds, in some respects thousands of years, to come to that point. And yet here, 2,500 years ago, Parmenides and the goddess speaking through Parmenides is saying, look, this is cutting-edge knowledge, but... Don't take it seriously. It's all an illusion. 
Now, Parmenides himself came out of an even more ancient lineage. Could you talk about the lineage of Parmenides? Yes, I would be honored to, best I can. Parmenides comes, he, he himself lives, and we have to assume was born in southern Italy, in a place called Vilia, which is a little way to the south of Naples, what remains of it now. And his people, his ancestors, and no doubt his parents, came from what now is the west coast of Turkey, a place called Sotia. And there is quite a bit that we know about the Sotians and also about these settlers of theirs, the colonists in Vilia. They also, the, the Sotians, they settled in Massalia, which became Marseille in the south of France. These were quite extraordinary people. On the one hand, they were incredibly daring, bold, courageous explorers. They went up to the Arctic when practically every Greek you would have thought, talked about would have said you can't go beyond Gibraltar, you can't go beyond the pillars of Heracles because the Atlantic is the world of the dead. These people were just going way beyond what you could imagine. And uh, as well as being explorers and adventurers, and wayfarers and navigators, they also had a very, very strong tradition based in the practice of incubation. And maybe I should just say very quickly a word about incubation. Incubation is the extremely simple and beautiful practice of lying down, usually in a dark place, in a cave or a shrine or a temple sanctuary, and just... It's a lying form of meditation. No posture, no practice, no breathing techniques or anything. You just lie down and you sink into the unknown. And incubation was used traditionally to ask the gods for help in healing and also to ask the gods for help in being shown the reality behind appearances. I don't know if that answers your question in any way, Michael. It does, Peter, and it's... It's extraordinary that we're having this conversation today because here at Commonweal, we are in our, I think, 136th week-long cancer help program. We do these week-long retreats for cancer patients, uh, which we've done for the past 22 years. And my colleague Rachel Naomi Remen and I really quite consciously from the beginning of the cancer help program had a sense of lineage uh, back to the uh, healing temples of ancient Greece and Turkey. When my wife Charles and I were in Turkey, I had an opportunity, it was in a driving snowstorm actually, to visit the ruins of one of these healing temples and to walk through the underground corridors uh, where uh, people came when they were ill to heal. So... Um, your, and in the cancer help program, our, our sense very much is that in the quiet of this place, uh, and particularly in the uh, deep relaxations we do, where people lie absolutely still at the end of yoga class, uh, that there's a sense of uh, how powerful it is uh, when you are ill uh, to find these places of stillness uh, and the great... Uh, true wisdom for healing that often emerges from it. So just as you have sought not only to be a, a classical scholar of this, uh, but to bring it into the present day in your own teachings, uh, we have a deep sense of affinity to that uh, quest of yours. Well, 
thank you, and I mean, I'm very, very happy to hear you say that. I, I don't really see any choice in this because it seems to me that when you actually understand the essence of this ancient wisdom, when you make contact with it, it's not just a matter of understanding. It's like osmosis. When one touches the, the wisdom and the beauty of these ancient traditions of healing or of wisdom, they, they enter your bloodstream. They become a part of you. And I'm very, very aware that this essence of ancient Western civilization, it has to, it actually is asking, it's begging now to be brought into consciousness and applied in the modern world. This is why it was such a delight for me a couple of weeks ago. I, I had a, a long conversation with Ed Tick, this wonderful, wonderful man in upstate New York, who he came to teach the practice of incubation to people as a result of working with Vietnam vets and being totally frustrated by everything that was on everything that was available uh, for helping vets who had come back either wounded or with post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was when he gave up and went to Greece and ended up in Epidavros in this ancient incubation sanctuary, something happened to him. He had these extraordinary experiences, and now he works through incubation to help vets, to help people coming back from Iraq, from Vietnam. This, to me, is the real work. We have to be real. It's not a matter of just sitting in a study. These, these ancient principles have to be applied. And I really want to emphasize from my, my perspective, it's not a matter of saying of me or Ed or anybody else or you saying we must apply these ancient techniques. They want to be applied. They're asking to be applied through us. There is this incredible evolutionary need, if you like, for the past to come into the present in a way that can be accessible to people now. And I think part of what is uh, important about your work is that, that a number of these techniques have come back to the West, as you pointed out, through uh, Eastern uh, traditions. Uh, but what you've really done is to uncover uh, in the axis of Athens and Jerusalem, which uh, many people regard as the axis of the origin of Western civilization, you have uncovered in Athens uh, these traditions at the very inception of uh, Greek philosophy. Oh, yes, and it, it has to be, because otherwise everything, our understanding of, our his, of history, our history and our, and, our, and our understanding of ourselves, everything becomes skewed, everything is distorted, everything is misunderstood. The Athens-Jerusalem distinction was a creation of certain early Christian fathers who had a particular polemical agenda. They wanted to make Jerusalem what, in many ways, well, not so much Athens, but other places in Greece, um, had already been. They wanted to say everything sacred belongs to Christianity. There is nothing worth taking from the ancient Greeks. And that was necessary at the time for Christianity to become what it became, but it led to a terrible misunderstanding. And I think it's actually people now in the West craving for what has been covered over 2,000 years ago. So we desperately look to other cultures. And that's fine. It works to a degree. It works to a point. But what I see more and more is that there is actually there is something larger on a cultural level that we have to serve. It's not just a matter of even finding our own enlightenment. That itself can become selfish. We need to actually enlighten the culture as well as ourselves. 
And in view of that, perhaps going back to the other major figure in, in your work, uh, could you tell us about Empedocles? Oh, very, very hard, very difficult. Empedocles is such a, a mystery. He is such a, a trickster. Such, he has such an extraordinary sense of humor. It's very, very hard for me to, to speak objectively about him, but just to try. As Parmenides is the founder of logic, Empedocles is indisputably an essential figure in Western culture and science and philosophy for introducing the theory of the four elements, which was to be so fundamental for many, many hundreds of years in chemistry and in other disciplines, and for laying the groundwork for physics, cosmology, many, many other disciplines. And yet all of this, all of these wonderful disciplines that he actually introduced to the Western world, he introduced like Parmenides from a divine world that we no longer understand. And so it's like we just take the gifts, but we forget where the gifts came from. And one of the points that I like to make, because I find it so personally so revelatory, is that Empedocles distinctly states at the beginning of his cosmological poem, his teaching about physics and the world and everything, he says, you're not going to be able to understand anything of what I say unless you take my words in, in a certain way, unless you tend to them in a certain way, unless you breathe in a certain way. In other words, unless you have a certain meditation practice right at the beginning, and especially unless you treat my words with respect and even with devotion. And of course, that's something that in this modern world where everything is so much up for grabs, it's very easy for us to forget. There is this very, very simple quality of devotion right at the basis of Western science, Western physics, Western cosmology. It was based on an attitude of we must have the right attitude, otherwise not only will reality elude us, but reality will actually fly away from us. It will avoid us. And Empedocles talks about this in very, very beautiful terms. You know, the truth will only go where it is welcome. Otherwise, it will just fly away, go back to where it comes from. It has to be welcomed with the, with the appropriate attitude. And I, I don't know if that answers No, it, do, it, does, it does answer my question. As I remember, uh, Empedocles, uh, you describe Empedocles as saying to his disciple that that. Empedocles' words have to be held down in the diaphragm, and the and the uh, they have to be held low in the diaphragm or abdomen, and split there, uh, and split in a sense uh, that the Greeks used uh, to refer to the grafting of uh, uh, of a, an apple tree or something onto rootstock. Do I remember that correctly? Yes, you remember it beautifully, Michael. You have an amazing memory. Absolutely, yes. So help us decipher what he meant uh, by instructing his disciple to hold... It sounds like almost like a Zen teaching, that, that uh, one, one focuses uh, one's awareness in, uh, at the, at, in the abdomen. Uh, and, and it struck me there are many resonances between the Zen sense of, of being aware of all of our senses and uh, your description of Empedocles and his focus on coming to our senses and uh, 
the root meaning of common sense. Yes, yes. I mean, yes to everything you say. I mean, first of all, in relation to pressing down, it's actually pressing down underneath the diaphragm, uh-huh. pushing down through the diaphragm into the abdomen. And then there is this mysterious agricultural process that Empedocles describes. He's hinting at it, and this is the way that Greeks and, of course, many other traditions as well, they would just hint. They wouldn't say it too obviously because, again, this is where the attitude of respect and attention, especially attentiveness, comes in. Um, Traditionally, you don't force things down people's throats. You don't say things too openly, too upfront, not because you want to create an aura of mystery, not because you want to become a mystagogue or anything, but simply you just put it out there like a seed, and if people have the right attitude, if they're really attentive, they will get it. And so Empedocles here is putting out the hints very, very clearly about this mysterious agricultural process that takes place. And it actually has to be experienced. That's what's so interesting. Stage by stage, it has to be experienced. You can't experience two stages ahead, and you actually can't understand it two stages ahead. You have to go through the experience one stage at a time, and then the understanding comes with it, although the words are there. But essentially what he's saying is that if somebody takes his words in to the body, down, presses underneath the diaphragm into the abdomen, nurtures them there, tends them, waters them, nourishes them with a particular quality of attention and respectfulness, then eventually they will start to grow. And I guess you can see that the parable, the, 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 the similarity here with the parable of the sower, the idea of the word as a seed. This is a very, very ancient mystery tradition. And for Empedocles here, his words, he's saying his words will become planted in someone who is ready to receive them and they will grow and then they can actually be, as you said, they can be split and something can be inserted, something can be grafted onto this growing stock of the words as they grow inside the belly and before I come on to say what that is, I'd just like to make the point you mentioned then, absolutely I was very, very struck when I was researching this material 30 years ago now that just as you have Empedocles here describing essentially a tree growing inside the abdomen, uh, you actually have certain pictures in, in certain Buddhist traditions of especially of a lotus flower growing in the abdomen, especially pictures of the Buddha, that there is actually a growth. And you find this in alchemical illustrations as well, but it's very, very much there in certain Buddhist traditions the lotus flower or some other plant growing out of the, growing inside the body of the Buddha, but growing up from the abdomen. And that is this this mysterious inner agriculture that I think we've really forgotten about. um, This is meditation, spirituality, healing as well as something organic, the inner organic dimension, not, not just the outer agricultural process of farming or gardening, but the inner farming, which is an extraordinary process. And that really, I would like to say, that is what Western civilization was supposed to be. The fundamentals, the principles of logic, of physics, of chemistry, of biology, these were seeds that were supposed to be planted in this new civilization and then were supposed to be tended through a particular attentiveness and allowed to grow into a new culture. But it didn't quite work that way. 
degree, if you like, of Western civilization got rather stunted and distorted. And so we're not very happy nowadays. And that stunting and distorting, as you describe it, uh, took place essentially at the hands of uh, Plato and particularly Aristotle. And um, uh, you describe uh, vividly uh, the, uh, what Harold Bloom, the, the literary critic, would call the strong misreading of one's predecessors. You describe the, the strong misreading of Parmenides and Empedocles uh, by uh, Plato and Aristotle. And, and I would be tempted to say that your venture is a similarly uh, powerful, uh, if you will, strong misreading of uh, Plato and Aristotle in, in, in Bloom's admiring sense of the term strong misreading, that uh, just as, in effect, uh, Plato and Aristotle had to kill Parmenides and Empedocles uh, in order to create uh, what they had in mind. Uh, so you have set out to really uh, upend our uh, conventional understanding of Plato and Aristotle and return us uh, from our focus on a, a kind of a dream vision of uh, Athens as the essence of uh, Greek uh, culture uh, to an understanding of the importance of places like uh, Velia, of the importance of Sicily and of uh, rerouting us uh, in this uh, shamanic vision of the origins of Western civilization. Mm. Michael, and may I ask you a question? Please. I am. I was actually speaking yesterday with Larry Dossi, and he was talking about his acquaintance with you over many years, and his acquaintance with your your extraordinary work on alternative treatments of cancer and approaches to cancer, and the incredible work and how much he owes to your research, even up to right now, this new book that he's writing. And so somewhere I have, it's not just a curiosity, but the question I'd like to ask you is, how come that you, after all of those years of incredibly valuable um, incredibly advanced work when nobody, Larry was saying, you know, nobody was doing this to begin with apart from you. You were up there at the front doing it when nobody else was even dreaming of it or daring to do it. Why now with the new school would you be interested in reading my books or having a conversation like this when you've been doing so much incredibly valuable work, real work with cancer patients? What draws you now to a conversation like this? Well, let me answer that that kind question with a, with a with a question of my own, which will help me elucidate that, um, which is the original Greek meaning of the word school. Uh, I was looking back uh, at at that, and in the dictionaries I have, the original meaning of the word school in Greek has something to do with being a place where uh, lovers of wisdom and their students gathered in their leisure time in a, a deep understanding that the Greeks had a, a much more profound understanding of what leisure is than, than we do. Um, that this was a place where lovers of wisdom and their students gathered 
to explore the fundamental questions about life. And uh, please tell me, uh, you are much better than the dictionaries on that. Is, is, uh, is that an uh, accurate rendition of the original meaning of the word school? Uh, yes, it is etymologically absolutely correct. Uh, scholae, the origin of school, scholae means leisure. But I'm, as far as the history is concerned, it's actually in a way very simple and very complex because I, I would like to say that this is an Athenian definition now of what philosophy is. Note already the distinction, the, the dichotomy between one's labor, one's, if you like, one's real work, and then the time off, the leisure time, mm -hmm. the discussion. And this was really, as far as I can see, Michael, it was quite distinct from two different approaches that you see in earlier pre-Socratic and Pythagorean philosophy with people like Empedocles, Parmenides, Pythagoras himself. One of them is the very, very practical aspect of the search for wisdom where everything is involved. Every aspect of one's work is the search for wisdom. And so the outer farming, uh, and I should say that the, the image that many Greeks had of farming was of extremely hard work. You didn't have any leisure time. You were up before dawn, you were going out, you were checking, 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 watching the stars, watching the weather all the time. And even when there was no harvesting to be done, you were preparing for the next year. Constant work, very, very hard labor. And so when certain people such as Empedocles likened, compared the the, the spiritual, if you like, the philosophical process to agriculture, they meant this is serious hard work. This is full-time, and it's not in any way a leisure activity separate from one's daily work. It is one's daily work. Well, that's very helpful. Well, I, I'd like to answer your question briefly because the time with you is so valuable, but simply to say that it seems to me that the, the new school really is a a direct outgrowth of our work in the Cancer Help Program, of Rachel Naomi Remen's work uh, with physicians through the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness, of, of much of our work at Commonweal. And uh, because I think we share with you a sense that what the world is crying out for now is a, a recovery of uh, very ancient uh, wisdom traditions um, that bring us back uh, into an understanding of the essential oneness of life and the ways in which uh, our technologies and our rationalism and our materialism uh, have really simply put us at odds with the most fundamental uh, uh, universal laws about what is required uh, for life uh, to be sustained on earth. So for me, uh, you know, my, my origins really were in, at Yale and, and teaching political philosophy and both the classics and contemporary political philosophy. So it's in, a, in a sense, it's coming full circle um, back to the philosophical questions that uh, intrigued me uh, when I was a young man. Uh, but uh, having been outside of... Uh, the university, happily so, for the last 35 years, and wanting to recover uh, this dialogue, uh, not in an academic setting, but in a setting in which we're sharing it with fellow seekers all over the world.
So let me return, Peter, to the, the questions of, of uh, Parmenides and Empedocles and, and their uh, precursors. Uh, uh, the Pythagorean uh, tradition and the tradition of Orpheus uh, play a critical role in that lineage. Could you please describe that? It's very, very hard to say anything about Pythagoras or Orpheus apart from being very, very specific because, uh, first of all, Orpheus, we don't even know if he existed and if he did, who or what he was. Pythagoras did exist, but really any concept, any notion you can have about what Pythagoras did is bound to be too limited, bound to be an illusion. Um, I'm very, very cautious what I say about him because he actually had, like Empedocles, an incredible sense of laughter. He was a very, very grounded person. He, um, he knew so much. He, in one way, he, he traveled physically. Uh, we have reports, which I believe completely, when you look at the evidence, um, it's really very, very convincing that Pythagoras did travel unbelievable distances to many, many cultures. He learned from many places. But also, he had access to an inner world. And this is something that, to me, is so important, and it's very, very difficult, really, to say too much about it, because... And as I said, here you have Parmenides, who is very much tied up with Pythagorean tradition, right? a Pythagorean teacher, who is given the laws of logic in an inner experience by going into another world. That sounds very strange to us. Pythagoras, he talks about, well, we do have references to him saying that he heard the harmony of the spheres when he was outside of his body. These, again, are ecstatic experiences. And this all basically boils down to this terrifying, terrifying experience of discovering the whole universe, all of the planets, the solar system as a whole, the cosmos inside oneself. And when one is able to do that, then very, very interesting things start to happen. You know, you can actually start to measure geometrical shapes and proportions by seeing them inside of your body. And that is what Pythagoras was actually doing. Now with Orpheus, Orpheus was a singer, Orpheus was a healer, Orpheus, as we know, made a journey to the underworld according to some traditions. It was very abortive. According to others, it went rather well. He, he was very, very clearly a shaman figure, and that brings up the whole question about the contact between Greece and shamanic cultures of Central Asia, which I'd be happy to talk about if you're interested. But one could go many, many directions with Pythagoras and Orpheus. I'd be deeply interested in hearing about the connections with Central Asia. Well, they existed. They were real. <laughs> I'm actually just writing now for my new book about how people actually came down from Central Asia, shamans came down from Central Asia to the Mediterranean, and they did what they did down there. And they, they traveled in a very specific way, quite extraordinary way, and they brought traditions down with them from Central Asia, actually even from beyond, from Mongolia. And these people, these travelers, were fundamental in shaping what we now know as Western civilization. And the evidence is there, and it's, it's, it's so funny in a way, and such a scandal in another way, that this evidence has not been presented in all its glorious simplicity. This happened. 
Western civilization didn't come into being in isolation, and it wasn't a little bubble. Now, there is a quality of consciousness that uh, Parmenides and Empedocles uh, and others in Greece uh, shared, the, the, the place from which they undertook uh, this uh, journey of consciousness. And I may not be pronouncing it right, but the word you use is metis. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes, metis, metis, metis. Yes, metis is fine. Yes. Um, and I was very struck by your description of what metis is, both in classical terms for the Greeks and for us today. What is that quality of metis within us? First of all, it's the quality of not taking ourselves seriously. We are not important. Metis is a divine quality. It's presented, actually, in ancient Greek tradition as a goddess called Metis. And yet she is a goddess who in mythology goes through certain experiences. She is swallowed by Zeus, but she is also available to humans. If you like, we can swallow Metis too. We can make her our own. But actually, it's a trick because you can never make the divine your own. The divine, in appearing to let you make it your own, actually takes you over and you start to do what the divine wants rather than the other way around. So, Metis is the divine cunning. It's the intricacy of design, divine design that produced this whole cosmos, this world around us. The leaves that I'm looking on are the trees outside, the sunlight coming through the trees, the blue of the sky. Everything. This is all the divine design, the cunning of the divine architect. Incredible subtlety and skillfulness that will make things work. The, the time, the, the, the fine timing of everything, where things work together in a harmony that we don't even understand. And we humans, according to the Greeks, have the ability through this, this gift of metis inside ourselves to keep up with this divine subtlety, with this trickery. We have to become tricksters ourselves. We have to become very subtle ourselves. We have to become as subtle inside ourselves as the reality outside ourselves. And I'm sorry, just to say one other thing, yes, the please. trouble with this metis is that it gets used by humans to serve their own purposes. And I remember when I was at university many years ago and I was actually writing about metis for my dissertation, my supervisor said, you must use metis to get by in the academic world. And I knew he was wrong. It took me a long time to understand why he was wrong. And what I eventually realized was, a little late, but I knew intuitively he was wrong, that you cannot use meters to serve your own purposes. That's the thing. You can be the wonderful trickster, but you mustn't use the trickery to serve your own purposes. You can use it to serve higher purposes, yes, but not to serve your own game. So there's a very, very interesting ethical subtlety involved here as well. And when you describe uh, Metis as having that, that sense of divine cunning, uh, uh, does that include, um, uh, I think it's Empedocles if I have this right, the, um, the effort to balance uh, Aphrodite in the world with uh, the goddess of, of darkness. Um, 
uh, the goddess of destruction. What is her name? I've forgotten her name. Well, the god of destruction, Nekos. That's a, that's a masculine force. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but y- you write beautifully about the sort of misreading of Aphrodite in conventional uh, uh, Western civilization. And could you just talk about the the challenge of Aphrodite uh, to our metas or metas that uh, the challenge of her capacity to enthrall us and bind us to the world. Yes, I mean this is it's this. What you're asking now about Aphrodite brings us back to what you asked a while back about the senses. It's all connected. Aphrodite is, and I hope she will excuse me for speaking like this, but Aphrodite is the goddess of beauty and love and sex, but she is also the goddess of illusion and the goddess who traps us into believing that this physical world is real. She creates these bodies for us, but you know they work for a while, but they don't work forever. And she is the mistress of illusion who traps us here and makes us believe that we really have to have a new BMW next year, or whatever it is. Really gives us all of these illusory thoughts that pop into our minds. However much we meditate, however pure we are, the thoughts still come because Aphrodite is so powerful. She's a goddess. And she essentially has woven this world of illusion around us through the senses. And one of the things that I really have to emphasize this because it's so fundamental, what really happens with Plato in another way with Aristotle is this turning away from the world, turning away from the senses to look for the truth or to look for freedom or to look for enlightenment somewhere else. And Empedocles and Parmenides would say no. It's actually through going into the senses, through understanding Aphrodite, through going to the heart of Aphrodite's mystery. That is how we learn to go beyond her, not by trying to escape from her. It's a totally different dynamic we actually somewhere have to become servants of Aphrodite so that we can become servants of what's even greater behind her. But doesn't it take that uh, metis, that divine cunning, to go to the heart of Aphrodite without simply becoming entirely entrapped by her power? Of course. Yes. Of course, and especially now, after 2,000 years of conditioning, this, this, we have this terrible, terrible duality, dualism, drilled into us, drilled into our genes into our DNA to our parents and grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents. You either indulge or you are an ascetic. There's no real alternative. There's no third alternative anymore. Either you become people of the world or you become devout ascetics. And these people did something else. So Empedocles described how he trusted, if I remember correctly, trusted in strife. Yes, mad strife. Please describe what Empedocles meant by that. Well, for Empedocles, there are these fundamental two principles of creation. Aphrodite, who brings the four elements of existence together and creates worlds and creates bodies and creates identities. And then there is strife, the opposite, that separates the elements out and destroys any organisms that have been created, any the, the components are disintegrated through strife. And so 
Empedocles is very skillful in the way he presents this because he is not going to present Aphrodite as the figure who traps us. He's going to say it much more subtly because he actually says, look, if you believe in Aphrodite, that's fine. If you love life, that's fine. If you love life, then for you, death is evil. And so I'm going to say death is evil and death is terrible because that's what you believe. And then he'll go on and say that you must know there is no death. But even though he adds that, when he goes on a few minutes later to talk about how terrible death is, he tricked people because they just hear what they want to hear and what they're familiar with, and they think that that's what Empedocles is saying. But it's actually what he is saying that people are saying. And so he is very cunningly, very indirectly saying Aphrodite is this power, this beautiful, beautiful power of illusion. And strife is this power of disintegration that can set us free. But the trouble is that if we, if you like, become servants of strife without knowing what we're getting involved in, then we become terribly destructive. Then we go to war. Then we kill people. Then we destroy this fragile creation. And we're not serving anything. We're actually making things even worse. So... The idea of trusting strife is really something very esoteric. I brought it out there in, in, in the book Reality because I felt it had to be said. For over 2,000 years, Empedocles has tricked everybody, Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, Plotinus, all the great modern scholars. Nobody really has seen at all what he's saying. And so I just thought it was time to say, you know, this is the way it is. It's really very, very simple. Aphrodite is not this glorious figure for Empedocles. She's a very ambiguous figure for Empedocles. And strife is not this terribly destructive force, period. Yes, strife is destructive. You should keep away from strife as much as you can. And yet, paradoxically, strife, when used consciously, when served consciously, can free us from our attachments. And this is where, if you like, this is where Empedocles ties in so much with Buddhism, the principle of, of actually learning to separate from our attachments not in an ascetical way. So these, in the big picture, these, these shamanic uh, healers came down out of Central Asia, came into the Mediterranean. Uh, uh, they were part in an extended sense of the, the lineage of uh, Pythagoreans and uh, Orpheus. Uh, they uh, connected with... Uh, Parmenides and Empedocles. And through Parmenides and Empedocles, who were deeply misinterpreted by Plato and Aristotle, nonetheless a lineage was created which uh, the uh, uh, Phocian, am I saying it right? Phocian uh, travelers uh, took up the Nile uh, to Islamic teachers uh, high up the Nile where Empedoclean circles uh, continued, which were adopted by Sufis. And the lineage was held, if I understand you correctly, in the Sufi and Islamic traditions, and then re-emerged uh, in our contemporary time uh, through those contemporary Sufi lineages as well. Do I have the essential cycle right? Am I missing some piece um, of that? A, a little. It's not, not quite right. Um, right. That's correct. It, it wasn't the Fakians who took this tradition down the Nile. Oh, okay. that, was more, that was more people connected with the Hermetic tradition. And secondly, 
Yes, synthetically and tradition did go through Arab alchemy to Mecca and into certain, especially Persian Sufi traditions. But I wouldn't say that it's been brought back from Persian Sufi tradition into the Western world. There's really very, very little of a connection there, as I'm sure you know. So um, whatever has happened until recently in Iran, uh, I don't, I don't know about. Mm-hmm. I don't have a connection with those people. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I feel that there's somehow what is dying out now in Iran, and especially in Iraq. Um, so something that's quite wonderful that happened here in March when we had our first meeting in Georgia. Um, we were talking about a very particular quality of life, and it was actually the first time ever that I mentioned a particular Gnostic group called the Mandeans, who had a very, very beautiful understanding of, of what life is. And the very day after I spoke about them, first thing in the morning when I got up, I looked online at the BBC News, and I saw the headline. I'd never seen anything about these Mandians before anywhere on the Internet, and there they were on the headline on the BBC News that they're just on the edge of extermination now. Hmm. And when I looked at that, I realized what's happening is that somewhere what has been carried for thousands of years in the Middle East by these beautiful traditions is being broken up, is being destroyed, especially by Islamic fundamentalism. And, and somehow, it's like a, a balance, somehow what has been preserved there and is now being destroyed, it has to be carried somewhere else. And if we can help here in North America to, to carry just a tiny part of that beautiful tradition of what life really is, I think that we're doing the very, very best that we can do. Tell us about the new book that you mentioned and your center in Georgia and what you see as your work in the coming years in terms of the teaching that you're doing. Well, the new book will begin with these connections between Central Asia and Greece and draw some conclusions about that and really just bring these extraordinary people back into the awareness of people nowadays so that we know that these connections existed so, so long ago at the very origins of our own civilization. And then the book will go through chapters on Gnosticism, Hermetic tradition, early Christianity, which I've never really written about before, and then through into the Middle Ages. So in a way, it'll be like an alternative history, but it's not planned as a history book at all really focuses on different individuals and their teachings and writings. And I hope somehow it will touch people who may not have been interested in these subjects at all. As far as my work is concerned, I just wait to see. We just wait to see here. We do the best that we can. We just now, we just heard this week that um, the IRS has granted us 501c3 nonprofit status. That's been in the pipeline for a while. So we just take this one step at a time. We have meetings here. We have a retreat coming up in October here in northern Georgia. I'll be going to Europe next spring. And the way that this manifests, one thing that I feel very, very important and I feel to be more and more urgent is to keep connections alive with the academic world. And how that is to happen, God knows. There are certain possibilities, but... Really, this is something so deep, uh, the, the problem. The, the, um, someone here at a very dear friend at Emory University here in Atlanta was just telling me a few days ago about 
how she was struck by the comparison between what I'm trying to do, actually what she's trying to do, and I don't know if you know Albert Camus, this beautiful French existentialist writer who wrote the book The Plague, who wrote The Outsider and then The Plague, and she was describing how the first sign of the plague, according to Camus, is when the rats come out and die. And she said, you know, we don't know, we don't understand that it's not about us, but something deep inside us dies. When, when things are not right in the world. And it's not necessarily us that are even perceiving it, but something deep, deep, deep down dies. And somehow we need to work to bring that back to life. And it's very, very difficult, and I see that it has to be done, including the academic world. This is why I admire the Dalai Lama so much, because I don't think he's really that interested in Western scientists. I've read statements that, in fact, say he's not really that. But he knows that it is his job, his karma, to work with Western scientists because they are the people who can really influence the Western world. And um, I feel that that needs to be done by us, too, to bring back a, a certain healing into all these dualities, all these dichotomies of this Western world we live in. Peter Kingsley, author of Ancient Philosophy, Mystery and Magic, Empedocles, and the Pythagorean Tradition, and of In the Dark Places of Wisdom, and his most recent book, Reality, thank you for being with us. I encourage those who don't know your uh, work to take a close look at it. Peter, could you mention the name of your website? Oh, yes, it's www.peterkingsley.com or one word, dot O-R-G. It's a wonderful website. Uh, it is remarkable work. Um, I have uh, benefited greatly, Peter, from immersing myself in your work and from this conversation with you. So thank you so much for being with us at the New School. Well, thank you so much to you, Michael, and all the very, very best. It's lovely to speak with you again. Wonderful. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website, where you'll find full-length recordings of all New School conversations, as well as information on upcoming events. Our website address is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Thank you for joining us.